Winifred Applin, 58. Walter Bennett, 66. Nicole Burgess, 17. Sue Chung, 32. Elva Gaylard, 48. Zoe Ann Hall, 28. Elizabeth Jane Howard, 26. Mary Elizabeth Howard, 57. Mervyn John Howard, 55. Ronald Noel Jari, 71. And Tony Kiston, 51. Leslie Lever, 53. Sarah Lawton, 15. David Martin, 72. Nolene, aka Sally, Martin, 69. Pauline Masters, 49. Alana Louise McCack, 6. Madeline Grace McCack, 3. Nanette Patricia McCack, 36. Andrew Bruce Mills, 39. And Peter Brenton Nash, 32. Gwenda Neander, 67. William Ng, 48. Anthony Nightingale, 44. Mary Nixon, 60. Glenn Piers, 35. Russell James Pollard, 72. Jeanette Kathleen Quinn, 50. Helena Maria Salzman, 50. Robert Graham Salzman, 57. Kate Elizabeth Scott, 21. Kevin Sharp, 68. Raymond Sharp, 67. Royce Thompson, 59, and Jason Winter, 29. Hello, and welcome to Killer Casting. I'm Lisa Zambetti. I'm a casting director in Los Angeles, California. And the 35 names you just heard were the victims of the worst mass shooting massacre in Australian history, which happened in Port Arthur, Tasmania on April 28, 1996. And we are telling you their names first and not the name of the person who murdered them. Today we are covering an extraordinary film called Nitram, starring an incredible cast with Caleb Landry-Jones, Judy Davis, Anthony LaPaglia, and Essie Davis. This is a powerful, disturbing, and intimate film about the 28-year-old white male offender. It's about his family and other relationships, and it does present a point of view. It plots a trajectory as to what led him to this horrific act. But we just first wanted to say the names of the victims, and thankfully, no spoiler alert needed, but the film exercise extreme restraint. You don't see the victims being killed, but you do see a whole lot else. And joining me today, I know this film is very important to you, Dean. You've been talking about it as it was coming for a really long time now. And Dean, my pal from Down Under, how are you? I'm good, Lisa. I'm uh, I'm good. Um, but it is a sober occasion. We usually have a pretty bubbly and frothy pod, but that is not one of these days. And our name as well. It's an ironic, usually a lighthearted kind of an in-joke about killer casting because we do feature films and television that feature crime, including murder. Uh, but also, of course, we can discuss films that just feature what is, in inverted commas, killer casting. Well, what a great person for the role. But there's no lightheartedness about today because it's nobody in Australia can think about the events um, surrounding this film without a very heavy heart and uh, great sadness to all of Australians. Mm. But also joining us today, we have a very special guest. It just seemed really appropriate to bring on somebody who could really talk about this event in terms of criminal forensic psychology, because this film just takes such a deep, dark look into the psychology of this mass shooter. So welcome, Dr. Tim Watson-Monroe. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure, Lisa. Hello, Dean. Uh, What an extraordinary movie it is. Thanks, Tim, and for coming. And just for the listeners, could you just give us a very quick view of your background and why you're well-equipped to discuss this particular offender and this type of offence? I'm a criminal psychologist. I've worked in the area for 43 years now. I was formerly the national chairman of the Forensic College of the Australian Psychological Society. I've held a number of academic positions formerly the national chairman of the Forensic College, as I mentioned. 
And I've assessed in excess of 30,000 persons of interest or offenders. I've worked with the police, but primarily for the defence. In terms of mass murderers, I was the person who assessed Julian Knight, who prior to Nitram committed the most horrendous mass shooting in Australian history, beyond the colonials massacring uh, Aboriginal people, of course. And Knight was a client of mine from 1987, uh, more or less through to the present. He still has contact with me, but I was very much involved in assessing him for the defence in the lead-up to his court hearing. I didn't assess Nitram, but I saw a number of people who survived, people who were in the Broad Arrow Cafe. One person was standing behind him in the in the queue when he was getting his food, and they described firsthand the horror associated with the offender uh, at the time of his offending. Before we get into the actual film, I was curious, what do you think is the benefit, if any, of films that depict real killers? Because there's always a lot of controversy, no matter who it is. We don't want to make rock stars of these people. That's exactly what they want. They want to be immemorialized. So many of them look up to the media covering other shooters. And so to have a film made about you must be sort of the ultimate way to get off on your own notoriety. So do you have any opinions about when people make films like this? Uh, Look, I think what you say is true. Certainly those who are not insane. Those who are bad, not mad, part of what they do is the notoriety. And Knight, for example, there's some very chilling footage of him. The morning after he was questioned concerning Hoddle Street, he was falling over himself to look at uh, press clippings of the night before. They're driven by their ego. So that's certainly something that needs to be taken into account. I think one of the great things about this movie, Nitram, is that the offender isn't named and you don't see his carnage. On the other hand, I think the public have a right to know. True crime, of course, is a a growing market. People have a fascination with what makes the criminal mind tick. And movies such as this, disturbing as they are, are very educative in terms of informing people about what goes on in the minds of these people. And with this particular movie, what was going on in his mind for many, many years prior to the actual offending. The movie plots his deterioration, I think, very succinctly. Interesting. So I do know that the director, Justin Kurzel, has said that evil forgotten is evil repeated. I may be butchering that quote. And I think that that's true, that we do need to remember what they did and who they did it to. But, and Dean, I can't wait to get your opinion of the movie. I don't think that this is a biopic at all. And you may contradict me, Dr. Tim. I do not believe, and I haven't interviewed Caleb Landry-Jones, I would doubt that he did any research of any kind about the real offender. I think he looked at what was on the page, an extraordinary script, and he he just depicted what was on the page. Because in my knowledge of this real offender, the affectation of this real offender is nowhere near... Caleb Landry Jones' performance. And I'm glad about that because I'm so used to things, Dean, just like Fincher's Mindhunter, where there were these very spot-on impressions of Charles Manson by Damon Harriman or Ed Kemper uh, by Cameron Britton to, you know, to the molecule. They had the voice, they had the mannerism, they had the prosthesis to make them look, sound, all the behavior, all the cadences to absolutely mimic these real killers. And you see Richard uh, Ramirez also depicted all over the place as his cockiness. And I honestly don't think Caleb Landry Jones comes anywhere near mimicking this real offender. What do you think, Dr. Tim or Dean? I think it's a broad brush. It certainly doesn't drill down into every aspect of his life, but it is very cleverly nuanced. What we know about the offender is that he was bad, not mad. He was extensively evaluated in the lead up to his hearing, which incidentally didn't involve a trial. He pleaded guilty in the end. There was some suggestion he was autism spectrum disorder or Asperger's syndrome, as it used to be described, Uh, intellectually borderline, so an IQ between 60 and 70 and clearly behaviourally disturbed. And certainly we get very vivid glimpses of his behaviour in terms of the dysfunctional relationship he had with his parents. His mother, with great respect in some ways, is seen as an enabler in the film. I think she supports him. Dad's just completely out of his depth and very depressed. 
and you see evidence of his behavioural disturbance in terms of his interaction with the community. He was regarded as a pariah and a joke and years and years of rejection and belittlement, I think, fed into a growing cauldron of anger that ultimately led to his offending behaviour. So I agree with you. It's not in the same uh, genre as other uh, films you've described, but you certainly get a sense of who this offender is and you get a sense of what drives him and you get a strong sense of the, the despair that his parents must have experienced most of his life in terms of what do you do with somebody like this? How do you treat them? Exactly. Dean? Just on that point of Tim's, I thought Judy Davis's performance of the, just the long sufferingness of having to deal with him would uh, be tough enough as a, as a child. And we see in the very opening scenes real footage of him, archival footage of him being interviewed in hospital when he burned himself as a kid. But as an adult, he's still a child, but he's a man child. And so I thought Judy Davis's performance, and we can get into some aspects of that a bit later, but nonetheless, her acting in it, the weariness of having to deal with him, I thought she portrayed that brilliantly. As to Caleb in the role, he was obviously cast for his physical likeness. And whilst there's a lot of the offender's real life behavior that the film chose to completely excise, and we can discuss that too, I thought he was very convincing in the role. And just as a little aside, very unusual for Americans to nail an Aussie accent, let alone a Texan, and he's done a brilliant job of that. So his voice coaching and work on that was superb. (laughs) I did read that Tim, this will mean something to you, perhaps less so to Lisa, but when he was doing his voice coaching, he holed himself up in his pandemic constrained hotel room and watched hours and hours and hours of TV such as Hey Hey It's Saturday. And his voice coach was pointing out that the Aussie accent has changed just even in the last 20, 30 years. And so he was listening to authentic Australian voices from that era. Oh, yeah. From that time. And that was a really detailed way to how deep they dug in to get his voice right. I was really impressed with that. I read that too, and it speaks to his incredible talent as an actor. And Judy Davis, revered actor in Australia, she was amazing, and uh, so was Anthony. I mean, the cast was extraordinary, and the orderliness of the offender in terms of his accent and his feckless interaction with his life was portrayed so well. Mm. So great research and great product. Just to speak about the casting of Caleb Landry Jones. Now he is like on everybody's list to cast in everything. There are so many films that we've offered him. I've offered him a million roles. And he's sort of known for being quirky, often dangerous, definitely off-center. And sometimes he's stunningly enigmatic and handsome. And sometimes he's stunningly terrifying, depending on which movie. And I first saw him in Friday Night Lights. He was a local Texas kid and he was cast on that show. He had a little tiny part as a drummer and he was fantastic. I mean, I noticed him right away. But to see him grow up and really just come into his own kind of archetype is astonishing. However, in this role, he is unlike any other super weirdo he's ever played before, and he's played plenty, he has dug in so deep somewhere inside of him. And I disagree, Dean. I don't think he looks at all like the original offender. I mean, I watched all those hours of police interviews with the real offender. He is so vain and so preening and has so many other affects to him that I absolutely, even in the hair, right away, you know, in the very beginning, Landry Jones puts his slimy, greasy hair in front of his face, almost hiding from it. And the real offender had this surfer, quaffed, blonde, parted on the side hair. I mean, it was just a completely different POV to me. I feel like this is just not a biopic to me. I feel like it kind of like Hannibal Lecter was based on a real killer and Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs was based on a real killer. I feel like it had all the the signposts of a biopic, but... I just feel his performance just transcends. It is so full of pain and 
not understanding, and doctor, I want to ask you about this. He doesn't understand why his impulses are wrong, or sometimes he does understand why they're wrong, but he does them anyway. And in the beginning with the firecrackers, he knows he is driving. The first scene you see him shooting off firecrackers after we know he's burned his hand off as a child with firecrackers, but he knows that he's driving people crazy. And his parents are like, for the love of fuck. Dad is like, just let him do it. And the mom is like, they just don't know how to handle it. When he was a little boy, we used to play a game at the fabric shop in town. He'd go off and hide in all the big, tall rolls of fabric. And then I'd try and find it. It was about five. He loved it. I loved it. We used to play a lot of games. It sounds beautiful. But then this one day, I went to find him, and he wasn't there. He lived everywhere. Not in the silks, not in the cottons. Nowhere. I just couldn't find him. Ran into all the shops. Strangers were stopping to help me. I looked for him for over an hour. Tears streaming down my face. I was hysterical. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that's the worst thing, isn't it? A mother losing a child. What did you do? I gave up and went back to the car. I was going to drive to the police station. But then... I heard someone laughing. I looked around. And there he was. Lying on the floor of the back seat looking up at me, laughing. Laughing at my pain. Tell me what that is inside of someone who has all these impulses and they can't control them. What is that diagnosis? What is that on the spectrum of? The formal diagnosis then was Asperger's syndrome, but these days it's referred to as autistic spectrum disorder. And he's clearly on the spectrum. There's no arguing about that. There's a very telling scene in the movie after the death of his father where he's having a one-on-one with his mother and you get some glimpses to his insight where he describes himself as a, a loner, a retard, People refer to me this way and that way, which speaks to whether it's real or not, some sensitivity uh, and awareness about his limitations. He spent his entire life as a loner, bearing in mind in a remote part of a remote part of Australia where the village idiot is known to all. And so he's very quickly labelled, I suspect, as, as that. People keep away from him. There's another scene where he offers a, a firearm to a server He tried surfing. Everything he attempted to do, he failed at. So it reinforced this perception of being a failure, an outcast and all the rest of it. So he has insight, I think, notwithstanding limitations of a low level of intelligence and severe personality issues. To answer your question, they're very frustrated. I've assessed a lot of people who fall into this category with less extreme crimes, of course. They speak about their despair and being outcasts and they would like nothing better to be able to grab what their problem is and deal with it. But they can't because they don't have the hard wiring to do it. And in this movie, there's some discussion earlier on in his life, you know, he's on medication. He's been treated for depression and no doubt he was depressed. If you were him, you would be depressed. But that wasn't the primary diagnosis. The depression was a symptom of much more deep-seated problems and flaws in his character that he couldn't grapple with, his psychiatrist couldn't treat, and his parents were at their wits' end in terms of trying to deal with him. 
Just on the performance and from a medical point of view, Tim, you see the actor often double blinking, doing a rapid double blink. Does that mean something medically? Is there a something to that? He, he, he in. I don't know, is it is it indicative of some condition? Well, speaking as a psychologist, it, it could mean a lot of things. It could mean that he's slightly dissociated. It could mean that he's pausing to think about things. He has problems with processing information, this guy, uh, and he has problems in controlling his impulses. There's another scene where his, his mother asks that he doesn't come to his father's funeral because he's dressed as a clown. Not as a clown, but she described him as being clown-like in his attire. Now, I'm sure that was lost on him. He probably thought he was doing his father a great credit and paying respect to him. And he hops into his yellow Volvo and drives off with great anger. So any frustration in his life is always met with what he knows best, poor impulse control and anger, and it builds from there. Mm. My wife observed that it it reminded her, bear with me, I'll make sense of this, of one of those air crash investigation shows where when you look backwards at what happened, it's a series of sliding sort of panels with a hole in the middle and all of these things have to occur and then to line up for that accident to happen. And so had his father been able to buy the guest house, had they gone to that and worked happily there, had he not met Helen and she was rich and left him all that money, had you know all these things not have happened, we wouldn't be sitting here talking about it, but they did. And I felt that was true. He might have just continued to be a local weirdo had he not have had access to drop $5,000 on an AR-15. And to listeners, we should point out that the film Nitram sounds like a weird title, but it's, it is the offender's first name backwards. And throughout the film, as he's walking around the town, he would be heckled by them calling him Nitram because, I guess, that was their way because he was, quote, backwards. So I'm, I'm assuming that's how he picked up that moment. I think there are all these sliding door moments in his life. You've articulated them very well with respect. I wondered about the acquisition of a seascape uh, guest house because that had enormous symbolic value for the family and his father. And his father became very depressed. Uh, he apparently suicided. There were some question marks over that. If he hadn't met Helen, he wouldn't have had the money. The other one that uh, isn't really discussed, you, you see some footage of it where it's described as the Dunblane Massacre uh, in Scotland, which occurred about a month before this massacre at Port Arthur. And there's some suggestion that this planted the seed. He's looking for attention. They talk about the Dunblane offender, a loner, person looking for attention. And you can see how he possibly joined those dots and away it went. The other issue, of course, was gun control uh, in Australia back in the 90s. In the wake of me assessing Julian Knight, and I was very down on poor gun control in Australia. I did a lot of interviews and press conferences about it. I was invited by the anti-gun lobby in Tasmania to go to Hobart for a day and do a series of presses there about this issue. And I did some research on it. And to my horror, there was more than twice the number of guns in Tasmania as people. So for every person in Tasmania, there was at least two or three guns in the household. And uh, they were talking about reforming gun laws. There was discussion about people bearing their guns and their properties. No one was going to challenge that that right to bear arms and so on. And some of the press conference people were quite hostile towards me, given my very strong position on it. And I left them with this thought, chillingly prescient, and I don't take any credit for it. I said, look, this place is ripe for a massacre. <laughs> You've got disaffected people, lots of guns. And as the movie portrays, You've got the village idiot almost coming in with a big sack of money and buying these highly powerful semi-automatic weapons without even a blink and no registration required, no gun licence required. If there was one good thing that came out of Port Arthur, it was John Howard's decision to really tighten up on this, and he did. And people complied because they actually got what was going on with poor gun control in Australia. So, yeah, lots of sliding door moments and the what-ifs, uh, no doubt, continue to trouble people. Mm. I mean, it surprised even Australians that that got done. Those gun laws got done in 12 days. And for mm. listeners outside of Australia need to understand that 
Tasmania is, it's well, it's a state of Australia that is physically uh, separate from Australia, but it also has a bit more of a frontier outlook generally. So there are more people at the time, certainly, more people in Tasmania that Americans would probably relate to in terms of their sense of independence and guns and almost a country style of living, like a big country town. And when this offence happened, it was so shocking, it gave the politicians such licence to act. And if you're of a certain age in Australia, then much like 9-11 was for people in the US and people around the world, really. But you remember where you were when this news started to filter out. I was on a in a little country town in Western Victoria. We were visiting friends for the weekend. It was a beautiful day. I was sitting out in this lush green grass reading the paper, and then the radio reports started to filter in. And of course, initially, they're not accurate. But one of the people I was with said, oh, some blokes just shot 20 people in Tasmania. And I said, wow, shot 20. I said, crikey, how many are dead? He's got no, I think it's 20 dead. And then, of course, the numbers just kept stacking up and up as it tightened up. And it, it was just, you couldn't process it. It was incomprehensible. It's like, no, no, no. That's stuff that happens over there, right, in the US or elsewhere, this doesn't happen here. You know, as Tim said, previous to this, the worst mass killing or spree killing at the time was the Hoddle Street massacre, which I think seven people died. Tim, is that correct? Seven, seven dead and others injured. So, so to process 35 people dead and, and a single offender is just, it was just, you couldn't wrap your brain around it because we're just not used to it happening here. It was shocking. And that gave, we had a right, sort of centre right wing government. And we have someone here called the National Party, which represents the country people, and they're very pro-guns. The Prime Minister just said, I don't care what you say, we are going to make this happen, and it happened in 12 days. He showed great courage, I Mm. felt. Yep. Shortly after Hoddle Street, of course, there was the Queen Street massacre, four months later in Melbourne, where Frank Vitkevi got into Australia Post and he massacred eight people, or one more than night. I was called in by Australia Post to do the debriefing of some of the staff. So the issue of gun control for me back then in the early 90s, late 80s, was very raw because I'd seen firsthand what could happen. And so for listeners, the Hoddle Street and the Queen Street shootings, they were about 10 years prior to Port Arthur. 1987. Um, Night was August 87 and uh, Vitkovic was December 87. And just as an aside, on that Friday that Queen Street happened, I was lecturing the Australian Federal Police on gun control and mass murders. And the <laughs> word came through that there was a massacre occurring about three blocks from where they were in Melbourne at the time. They were very troubling times in Australia. And, of course, I, I remember too where I was on uh, the day of Port Arthur, and I thought, here we go again. Just terrible. Mm. Just on that note of mass killings, I have read in the past, Tim, is it accurate to say that to some extent that they tend to cluster together, that one mass killing can, in one location, can give make another offender in a different place disconnected, but just give them license or sort of give them a, the impetus? Well, that's what this movie is saying. Crimes. That's exactly what this movie is saying. Right? Yeah, well, that, that's what they're putting about Dunblane. And f- again, for people who don't know, that the Dunblane massacre was a similar to a Sandy Hook where – this is, I've got the right one, Doc, right, where a, a lone offender went in with, I think, uh, handguns into a kindergarten and murdered dozens or a, a dozen children. Is that the that's, right one? That's correct. And yeah. after Hoddle Street, there was a mass shooting in the UK. It was within a, within a month, and there was a strong suggestion that that was a copycat killing. Uh, there's no doubt. You see, I think the common theme of these people, those that are not crazy, Vitkovic, in fact, was crazy. The Queen Street guy, he was suffering a psychotic illness. But the others, they know what they're doing. They are aware of the consequences of what they're doing and they're fit to stand trial. And so I think with these people, part of what drives them is the notoriety. There's a common theme of percolating anger, access to firearms, and then there's some trigger point that causes them to act as they do. Now, why this offender at Port Arthur chose that particular day, who knows? I suspect that he realised that it was a, a day when there'd be a lot of people visiting the Port Arthur tourist facility. There'd be people lined up in the cafeteria. And it was a great day to seek vengeance on the people that had dotted his dad over the seascape Airbnb. So he kills them first and then goes down the road and does the rest. So let's get back to the film for a second because it does depict that. So it depicts, and this gets to Anthony LaPaglia's 
brilliant performance. And I want to spend some time on it. I know that we've been skipping around the film. And if you haven't seen the film, I don't think we spoiled anything for you because you're going to know it was based on true events. It's a bit of a tough one too, Lisa, because it's got a cinematic release in Australia, but Melbourne and Sydney, the two biggest cities are in still in lockdown and there are no cinemas. So it's going to get a, a streaming release in the near future, but I haven't seen a date for when it's actually going to get released. So a lot of the times we have license, we're discussing the film well after people have had a chance to see it, but this time we haven't. So yeah, I'm like, like we you. We want I'm, to thank the producers. Yes, can we please? Yes. Yeah, we want to thank the producers for giving us an early screener of the film. It was just tremendously generous of them to do that. But I want to get back to the film and the, the progression. And I see, I don't know, Dr. Tim, if you think that this is what was true in real life, but in the film, there is a very strong connection between father and son. The father, even though he is driven absolutely bonkers by his son's behavior, there's a scene where he he catches his son in the middle of town, setting off a whole bunch of fireworks with a bunch of children, and he's causing a big ruckus at an elementary school, and he's got to pull him away. And it is an absolutely intense scene. And you see Anthony LaPaglia, who uh, I don't know if he has gained weight for this role or if they have padded him, but he looked just morbidly obese, trying to run over to his son and corral his son and then run back to the car. And there's a scene with them in the car where his son is just honking the horn, honking the horn, honking the horn. And the father just loses it. Like, why are you like this? Why? It was just a very intense scene. And both of them are just enraged with the other. You know, why won't you let me be with my friends? And the father's trying to explain, those aren't your friends. And then they drive. They drive to this very peaceful place, the seascape, which is this bed and breakfast on this beautiful property. And the, there's this, then right on top of this intense scene, there's this quiet, beautiful scene where the father is like, I want to own this. This is the one. Will you help me farm? And then the son is very tenderly, yeah, dad, you know, can we have animals? And it's just the sweetest, hopeful scene. I don't know if that happened in real life. I don't know if that's the relationship that those people had, but these actors just, it's just a breathless progression to go from one to the other. And the Bear in Anthea Lapalia's performance. He's just, uh, he's desperate for norma normality. He's desperate to have some kind of control and he's fixated on buying this property for his family. Like that's going to be the answer. What did you guys make of those scenes? Yeah, like you, Lisa, I was really struck by that, the tenderness of that scene in the car between him and his father. And further to my earlier point about sliding doors. They were both happy and they had a little joke. Can we get farm animals? Yeah. He goes, Oh, okay. His dad says, Oh, okay. Chickens. And the offender says, Oh, cows. His dad goes, What do you know about cows? And they laugh. And then he goes, What do you know about cows? And so it was just a happy, beautiful little, little interchange. And had a seascape have happened, like I said, who knows? So Lapalia's performance raises a decision that the filmmakers have taken. At least I'm going to offer my opinion that I'm slightly trouble with, and I wonder if you are, Lisa, that basically what the film says is that dad was his best friend and kind and loving and supportive, yet mom is played as a hectoring sort of somebody who is always putting him down and always saying she's she's like the negative and dad's the positive. And I felt that, I don't know whether it's true in real life, but it was not as kind to the role of her as a mother as Lapalia's role was as a father. Did you get that too, Liz? I didn't. I have a different interpretation of the mom. And so why don't we deal with Judy, her performance next? But I just want to finish with the father. And Dr. Tim, it seemed like this portrayal showed that this offender had immense empathy for his father. Like when his father doesn't get the seascape after all, and is so sad about it, it scares him. And when his father is depressed and can't get off the couch, you do see tenderness and then this whiplash pummeling that the son gives to that, like, get off the couch, get off the couch. But it implies empathy. Now, do you think that the real offender had this kind of empathy? Or do you think the filmmakers are kind of, you know, think that he did? Well, uh, I didn't examine him, but I would say in general principles, he was capable of empathy. It's not always all black with these people. It's a spectrum of feelings. And I think the seascape for 
to use another metaphor, was really the Noah's Ark for this family. They were going to get on board. They were going to, you know, cocoon him from the broad crew to a world out there, give him a purpose, get animals, make a living. And so I don't think you can overstate the importance of that facility and the symbolism attached to losing it. I mean, the first two people he kills are the owners that gazumped his dad on the property. I think he was capable of empathy in his own kind of twisted way. There's no empathy for his victims. He's totally detached. He's a psychopath. Now, do psychopaths have empathy? Generally, not a lot of it. I don't think he has a lot of empathy, but you you have to give him this, that he's low intellect, he's autistic, and so it's a very complex mix of emotional reactions to situations. Uh, Unquestionably, he had a very close relationship with his father, and his father, as portrayed in the film, loved him deeply. It was his life mission, really, to try and save his son or at least make his son's life a bit more palatable. I think with the mother, Judy Davis, what a a stellar performance. She's just browbeaten. She's broken down by all this. She comes as strong as a a strong, intelligent person who really, with the affliction of time, is just, you know, how do you deal with it? And, of course, he then uh, leaves the family home to go live elsewhere, and that's a big move in his life as well. That scene you mentioned, Lisa, where he's slapping his dad, it's a very brutal scene and, and whiplash is exactly right. He goes from zero to 100 just immediately. And when he finishes that scene and he, his father stands up and he looks at Judy Davis and he says to her, that's what you do. That's that's what you do. And I wondered if he was repeating the behaviour that he had had where in frustration, either mum had spanked him or slapped him or done something like that, and he looks at his dad on the couch and goes, oh, I know what he needs. Did, was there any sense of that with you, Liz? Okay, so that scene is in long shot. It's very far away, and I actually thought the scene was ending because it yeah. was kind of a long scene where the son is trying to comfort his dad, like, come on, dad, get off the couch, and he's petting his hair, like, you're scaring me, get off the couch. And it's a long shot. The camera pulls away, and I thought that the scene was ending. And then he fucking cracks him across the head and jumps on him and starts beating the shit out of him. But his voice is like, come on, come on, get up, get your pants on, boom, 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 Mm. boom, come. It was just the most crazy dichotomy of voice and violence that I've ever seen. And yeah, when finally the dad is like, okay, I'm up, I'm I'm up, and he kind of staggers away. And then his son kisses him, like kisses him all over his face. Mm. And then he sits yeah, down and yeah. looks at the mom. But Brilliant the, the way that Caleb Landry Jones is looking at his mom, it's like, I I hated doing that, but I had to do it. And yeah, like I learned that somewhere. Yeah, like he learned it either it has to come from somewhere. in a facility or he learned it on TV. Maybe he maybe he's interpreting it. Like when somebody's hysterical, you have to slap them across the face to get them to calm down. But it was just a brilliant read. While we're at it, can we just say what an incredible job that Sean Grant, the writer, has done with this? I've read in other interviews that it's been bubbling away in the back of his mind for a long time about how to do it. You know what I mean? He he didn't want it to be gratuitous. He didn't want it to be whatever, but he couldn't work out how to get into it. And finally he did. And so I think the script and the way he's rendered the characters, he's walked a very fine line and he's done it very well. So credit to him. To Justin as well. And just on the script list and talking about the mechanics of it. So... Sean met the director, Justin Kurzel when he wrote Snowtown. And then they've been working together ever since then for about 10 years. But as Justin said in another interview, Sean wrote this one on spec. So this script landed in his inbox without him speaking to Sean about it. And he said, I started to read it. And you said, I was in page three. And I was just like, oh, my God. So that was that was interesting, I thought. And, and interesting, too, for Justin to tackle this because he's been living in Tasmania for the last four years and he met his now wife, Essie, who is Tasmanian, and they met in Tasmania the week before the shooting. So this is not this is this is a very personal film to him. This is not something that he's just decided, oh, I'll make very a film personal about it. for them. Right. Just getting back to the offender for one moment and that going from zero to 100, I mentioned that I saw assessed treated a number of people who survived Port Arthur. And uh, there was one guy in particular who was there with his wife and they were on the the queue behind the offender talking to him. They said there was nothing that he gave away at all. He he was just a blonde guy with a a bag, 
lining up to get his soft drink and his pie or whatever it was he was coming at. The next minute, he pulls out the gun and starts shooting, and they dive under a table, and they it's the worst horror scene in the world in real time, real life, where they see his feet going up and down, where he's just popping off people. And then he realises there are people under the table, and he takes aim, and uh, this guy, an absolute hero, leaps up to defend his wife, and part of his arm's blown in two, and they don't die, and they manage to repair the arm. But it was just the most extraordinary description of somebody. If you can imagine anyone standing on a line behind someone and you're having a conversation, and there's no suggestion that in 30 seconds they're going to try and kill you and a whole lot of others. It, it stuck with me all those years. You know? Yeah, and I think this isn't in the film, thank God. But, you know, when you hear about a mass shooting, it can sound kind of distant, oh, 35 people dead, as though there was just like a spray of bullets that just kind of... No, he stalked people on this property. He went after people, and many people tried to shield their loved ones and cover their bodies, and sometimes they succeeded and sometimes they were both killed. But he not only stalked people, people in that cafe, but he ran towards the, we call them buses, you guys called them coaches when I've read the, but you know, he stalked people inside of the waiting tour buses, he ran around the buses, and then brutally, and I want to, I talk about this because I want people to really understand, he walked up to a mother and her two small children and executed them all point blank. I mean, this is beyond. He went after it in a purse. He wanted up close. You know, this is like wet work to him. But I don't know if that tracks with the portrayal that we see in Landry Jones in this film, the way that he pursued the victims. He wasn't on top of a rooftop just firing rounds. He went deliberately up to people and spoke to them. Does that track with the performance you see in Landry Jones in this film? I don't know. For some reason, his performance in that film does not feel like somebody who would do what the real offender did, the sadism, the torture that he inflicted. In fact, uh, the two, the first two victims that he killed at Seascape, what I read was that he actually tortured them before he shot them. He stabbed them and bludgeoned them and then shot them. And then, of course, set fire to Seascape. It's been sanitized a bit, and I think for, for obvious reasons, but you get nuances of his sadism. You get it in terms of beating his father up, as you've described. It's sadistic, it's confused, and it ends with the, the classic gaslighting, really. I've just beaten the crap out of you and I love you and I kiss you. There's that going on with him. It's nuanced earlier in the film where he, uh, you know, he's shooting at things, he lets off firecrackers. He goes to the seascape sometime before the massacre and dumps a, uh, tries to dump a wad of money wanting to buy the property back. There's clearly a lot of backstory tension that goes on between these families. Uh, maybe it's my training because I know a lot about the case, but I, I thought it kind of hinted at that issue fairly well without drilling down to the shock and horror that it really was. Mm. And Lisa, I think we've both seen the same documentary and we know for a fact that in real life, he, when he had that, what we call a slug gun, I mean, you guys call it a BB gun, that he was known to shoot birds and small animals and then stand over them, reload those single shot BB guns and shoot them again and again and obliterate them. So I think his behavior, which of course they don't show in the film, where he executes the mother and the two children, the elder one. So they were three and five, I think. So he shot the mother and the three-year-old and the five-year-old ran behind a tree and he, and he, and it's, I, I find it difficult to even say what he did because it's just so monstrous, but yeah, he walked around a tree, rested the barrel of the rifle against her neck and pulled the trigger and it's a 223. It's an AR-15. So that's, the wounds were horrific. And you look at the size of the shells and the cartridge, it's just, it's just, I mean, I've been doing this work for a long time, 43 years. I've seen the worst of most things. I found this film very disturbing. And I don't know if it's because I'm getting older, but I, I think it it betrays the the percolating evil that's going on in his mind and his disturbance so well. And you kind of know what's happening, but um, it's beautifully shot and the character is amazing and uh, it's 
very troubling. So I think it's nuanced. I think his evil is there. It's there if you want to see it, but it's it's not in your face like some movies uh, portray evil people. On that topic, Lisa, and again, just a little technical point here, but I was it took me until five minutes into the film, something just hit me right between the eyes and I went, oh, my God, which was the aspect ratio. Did you notice, Lisa? No. No. So about five minutes into the film, after the interview of him in the hospital as a child and after he he's walking up the hill of their driveway and he's pushing the lawnmower. So we're in the first five minutes of the film, but I've already seen four and a half minutes. And all of a sudden, because it's a, a, a wide shot, I went, what the actual fuck? What what ratio is this? It's not shot in classic cinema two two one. It's not even shot sixteen nine. And weirdly, it's not even shot four three. It is shot three two. So it's like an old slide film ratio. So it's three units wide for every two units up. So it's mm. got this claustrophobic. I think that's why he selected it. I haven't seen a film shot in three two like. I can't remember what other film I've ever seen shot this way. So I can't wait to interview Justin and ask if that was his decision or the cinematographer had an idea or it was, I don't know how they came about it, but it's got this weird. That's a great, that's a boxy. Great get there, Dino. I didn't notice that at all. So it looks like you're looking at a box and there's one particular scene. They've done some great camera work in this. So just to detour into technicals just for a second, because I do want to talk about Essie as well. But there's a montage of when he travels to Los Angeles and it's color tinted and it's it's got that retrospective and there's effects in, in the film and so on. It looks like it was shot on Smeary Super 8 or something like that. But as you're watching the sequence, I didn't even notice on the first viewing that the camera was just creeping back, creeping back, creeping back. And all of a sudden you see the edge of the TV. And then they're pulling out wider and wider, and we can see he's sitting on his uh, couch watching back the video that he shot of that trip. Absolutely. I was like, okay, I'm just going to have to stop and chapeau, sir, and tip my hat to whoever. Yeah, that was the great. Whoever blocked that shot. That was absolutely brilliant, brilliant. So let me just pivot for a second because I want to talk about the relationship between uh, the offender and Helen. Now, if I didn't know anything about this film – and I started watching it, I would think that this might be like a Harold and Maude, Grey Gardens, kind of a quirky romance brewing here. And I loved their relationship. I That's a weird thing to say about this film. But I loved, I mean, we're just rewatching the film today, just the moment to moment when misfits meet and completely understand each other, even though they're so different. What did you make of that relationship, Dr. Tim? Did you, I have no idea if this is how that relationship really was, but I, I was endeared to it completely. They were two misfits. She's lonely. She's up to the eyeballs in family money. Doesn't have any friends. She can't really manage her life terribly well. And serendipity, he knocks on the door and offers to mow the lawns and the relationship goes from there. She love bombs him with plenty of cash, buys him a car, um, buys him suits. I read somewhere that in a short space of time they purchased 30 motor vehicles. So she's got a very poor control over money as well. And uh, it is quirky. You wonder if she's on the spectrum as well. Right. Or there's something going on with her. It's not nuanced, but you wonder if it becomes a sexual relationship. It's not spelled out for you in the movie, but. Certainly, there's that possibility. What's the attraction beyond friendship? And of course, ultimately, he's responsible for her death, either by accident or by design. So he has this continuously bad, impulsive habit of pulling on the steering wheel. There was some suggestion that it was deliberate. However, he was severely injured as well. He was in hospital for a long time. So, mm. just on that point, the the movie actually skips over his rehab for the purposes of the film, which is quite fine, but. In truth, he was in hospital for seven months after that crash. So they show him in, in the film, he's in a neck brace for a while, and then we cut to something else, and he's a bit, his, his face is a little bit bruised and cut up, but he's getting on with his life. But it very nearly took his life as well. Yeah, so I think the two key women in his life, the mother and Helen, it's a fairly dysfunctional interaction with each of them, um, various reasons. And um, I, I understand the attraction Helen had for him and vice versa. And she bailed him out of his house, so he gave him something different to do. For a time, he became a somebody, not a nobody, because he was associated with money and um, 
he was able to go and buy cars and all the rest of it. But uh, much to the chagrin of his mother, by the way, she wasn't happy about it. And there's a great scene where the four of them meet over lunch and um, the mother then cross-examines Helen about what's your real motivation? Are you his sister, his friend, or are you his lover? It's never really answered in the movie, but it's a, it's a very telling point. That scene in particular, Lisa, there was one part of the of Judy's acting that I just, it just spoke volumes, it was physical. So when they're sitting at the table and she's got a, a package in front of her and she says, I got this for you, and she smashes her hands down onto the present. She almost crushes it. She, she's so, she's handling it with such disdain, like, I have to give this to you. It's it's a another one of those zero to 100 moments because she's otherwise sitting there impassive as she's grilling Helen, as you said, Tim. And then it's like, boom, and off it goes. And it, it, literally it makes you recoil and you, holy cow. I want to talk about Judy's performance in a second, but just to say Essie Davis, I've never seen Essie before that I know of. What a fantastic portrayal. She's both fragile and lost in her past or lost in this world of the Mikado and constantly listening to Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> she just has this this sort of fluttering energy about her. I just loved her and I, you know, was very sad to see what happened to her. But let's get into Judy for a second. All right. Oh, sorry. I- no, before we do. So on Essie, yeah. can, mm-hmm. I, can I just say that I, I chuckled to myself when I was l- listening. As you said, she's got her opera going and she's got her piano and she's got uh, Gilbert and Sullivan and all this sort of thing. I wrote a note to myself that said she she's Norma Desmond-esque, right? It's mm-hmm. it's almost like something out of, you know, Hollywood Boulevard. She's living in this abstracted world. For those who listening overseas wouldn't have got the shorthand, when he says to her, well, how, where did you get your money? She said, oh, do you know Tats Lotto? And he said, yes. And she said, I own it. Now, in truth, so Tats Lotto is our sort of national lottery, and it was started by a guy called George Adams, a private company, and she was one of the beneficiaries of the family. So she had uh, three or four houses at the time, and she, I guess she was in a trust and was getting regular disbursements of cash. So that's where she got her money from. But she it afforded her this lifestyle where she lived, as you said, um, Tim, in a, in a very uh, – she could live an eccentric lifestyle, and as you said, he was perfect to to live in within that same thing. And and I'd no yeah I'd no sooner written that she looked at you know it was a Norma Desmond esque than the next scene was uh, I, it was it who rated Hollywood Lisa I think it was it was the musical where the the in the actress is turning up in the the silver bus and jumping off and looking out all starry eyed at Hollywood I think it was who rated for Hollywood that came on so I, was, I had to laugh at that going well there you go. Well, one thing that the filmmakers left out, they left out this very important detail, was that Helen was not alone in that house. She had her aging mother, which is straight out of Grey Gardens. I mean, Grey Garden is about Big and Little Edie and this dilapidated estate, and they're hoarding animals, and it's all falling apart and squalid. And apparently that's really what happened. And I'm curious, I'd like to ask the filmmakers why they got rid of the elderly mother, because what they did to that mother, they just left her propped up in a chair with a broken hip for months. I mean, there's a lot of things that they left out of the film. You know, that's why I say it's not quite a biopic to me. Dr. Tim? And on that, there's no mention of the offender's sister. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. Um, You you get the impression that this is just a dysfunctional triad of two parents and a, a very troubled son, but there's another party to this, his sister, uh, who, by all accounts, is entirely normal, but she grew up amongst all this, but she doesn't get a look in at all. So on the topic of what they left out, let's just take a little roll call of things that they did leave out, which is that, for example, in the film, he goes from Helen and then he's by himself. In reality, he had many, many girlfriends over a long period of time, and some of those relationships lasted for eight months and six months, and he made multiple trips overseas. He didn't just go to Los Angeles. He went to Europe. He went everywhere using right. the money that he had. And the other aspect that I thought was interesting that they chose to leave out was in terms of his sexuality, he slept with a pig in his bed, and when he came back from Europe, he had videos, many videos of bestiality 
that he kept around the house that was spoken about by one of his ex-girlfriends. And so it'd be curious to know, did they just choose to hone in on the things that they did for the reasons of not wanting to go out of that or did they want to make him more sympathetic? I don't know, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah. I, I would imagine without speaking for anyone that you start introducing that stuff, uh, you really lose the thrust of what he's on about yeah. in so many ways. It raises mm. more questions than it answers. I wondered about his sexuality. There's really no exploration of relationships in his life at all beyond the kind of relationship he has with Helen and his parents. Well, okay, so we can wrap this up by talking about Judy Davis. Judy is just, I've been in love with her for, for decades, and she just puts in this incredible performance. And Dean, I, I didn't really find her cold. I found her just incredibly, after years of having this son, pragmatic. Like, she's seen it all. She's tired. She's just very pragmatic. And there are some scenes that start out kind of lovely where he comes home and she's making dinner and he's kind of hugging her and being lovely. But she's like, you got to get a haircut. Now, any teenager or young adult who is told to get a haircut by their mother, I take it from me, <laughs> is going to balk and perhaps throw a tantrum. That's exactly what he does. And it's like, well, I'm leaving. But it's an incredible, I mean, if you watch those moment to moment work, she's so shocked that he's got somewhere to go and she he starts to leave and he stops himself and he's just shaking because he's full of rage but he doesn't want to leave but he does and she starts to touch him and then he's like get the fuck away from me and he leaves and then she's like well get, get the fuck out of here you know so it's just this very interesting tactile relationship that kind of i don't know i don't know what she made of it dr tim it's a very telling moment in the film and probably his life where he's striking out on his own. She's losing her power and she's losing her power to another woman who would seem to be quite a bit older than him uh, in terms of the movie. So hence the question she asks, are you his mother? Are you his lover? And I think that their relationship is complex. Uh, you know, any relationship with a mother is complex. I, I still remember my mother trying to tell me to have a haircut and uh, my reaction to it five, six decades on almost. So it's a powerful moment. And for him, it's the one that it gives him the justification to leave. But there's a lot of planning that's gone on beforehand, I suspect. And, you know, the movie doesn't really drill down on the toxicity in that home. Dad's portrayed as this kind of all-forgiving He's given up person, mum, strong, intelligent. Uh, as I say, just a riveting performance by Judy Davis, I thought. Uh, without saying anything at all, the prolonged silences, you absolutely get the message about what that relationship's all about and how it's affecting her. Well, sometimes I watch myself. But I don't know who, who it is that I'm looking at. Like, I can't get to him. If I could, I could just change him so that he was like everyone else, but I don't know how. So instead, I'm, I'm here, stuck here, like this. Eating this shit, talking to you, all because I'm not a coward like him. I, I don't, I don't understand what you're talking about. It doesn't matter, Mum. Neither do I. So, you know, and often it is a love-hate situation. So uh, just as he's beating the shit out of Dad and kissing him, um, she's angry but also wanting him and stroking him. And uh, without being critical of the mother, often these double messages that people get, particularly when they're not psychologically equipped to deal with them, it's a form of gaslighting as well. There was a great book, uh, Sanity La Madness and the Family, Ronald Lang, 
wrote it, you know, decades ago about how family dynamics can set people up for crazy behaviour. Now, I'm not suggesting it happened in this case uh, because he's constitutionally limited. He's autistic, he's intellectually defective. Life circumstances have reinforced all in his life that's negative for him. But the relationship with the mother, I think, is a very complex one, and no doubt with the father, but at a different level and a different way. Sugar and shit routine in some ways. Mm. That was a, in that scene where he's beating his dad, Lisa. I thought it was an interesting choice to have mum just stand there and just observe what was happening. She didn't rush in to protect him. She just stood there silently, watched it, and I went, oh, that's really interesting. Right. I saw her urge to do something, but then she yes. doesn't. And it just reminded yeah. me of when you have a long term depressive person in your life and you know, you, you take care of them, you do everything for them. But at the end of the day, it's like, get the fuck off the couch. You know, it's like, you, you can't help but have your limits of your own understanding. And uh, that's kind of what I thought she was playing, even though it was horrible. It was terrible. Mm. But as we wrap up, I think, you know, gosh, thank you so much, Dr. Tim, for coming on and helping us break apart. But can you just confirm for us, most people with mental illnesses are not violent. Most people on the autism spectrum are more likely to have violence put upon them than to be violent. And I just think that that's an important message to um, say that these odd ducks in our world, probably now we're better equipped to deal with them than we were in 1996. Do you think? I agree with that. I, I mean, two of my books, A Shrink in the Clink and Dancing with Demons, address this issue, particularly A Shrink in the Clink, where a lot of these people with serious psychiatric disturbance are not innately predisposed to violence, but um, through a confluence and accumulation of life circumstances, it can create violence within them. Uh, it's often about frustration, though unrequited ambition, uh, a lack of acknowledgement. The thing you get in this movie, uh, along with a lot of other things, but the thing that resonated with me is that this is a kid who's looking for acceptance from the day one. He's looking for acknowledgement. He's trying to buy companionship even. And when he buys his ticket to go to LA, he wants to take the travel agent with him, for example. Um, it's a great scene. And so there's no affection in his life. And, you know, when you're faced with perpetual rejection over, you know, 20-something years, he was 26, I think, when this happened, eventually you get angry. But to reinforce the point you make, most psychiatric people, people with serious uh, psychiatric illness, are not innately predisposed towards violence. Life circumstances can create, and, of course, substance use can potentiate it as well. They're lonely, they're not treated properly, they get into booze and drugs. Well, that will make it more likely that they're going to be violent. And did you think that there were points of intervention along the way for this real offender that, you know, with the better drugs or a different cognitive something, he could have had a different path? I mean, it's hard to say, but I would imagine that today there would be different therapies for him or different facilities for him. I think so. There were various red flags throughout his life, the firecrackers, the obsession with attention, the cruelty to animals. I mean, one of the big villains in the movie, in my view, is the bloke who sells him the guns. I mean, you know, somebody walks in with 5000 plus in cash. In fact, it was more than that when he bought the shotgun and he does this under-the-table cash deal. That's just outrageous. That's enabling it. The surfer guy, whether it's based on fact or not, but in terms of the movie, when somebody comes up with to you with a bag full of firearms and says, take what you want, that's a red flag as well. Going to the seascape and trying to stand over the proprietors, another red flag. But back in the 90s, there was much less awareness of these sorts of issues and the potential for violence. I think these days, people are far more attuned to it. We have social media. We're much better connected in terms of these issues. And of course, there are more effective um, ways of diagnosing, corralling and treating these individuals. I made the point earlier, you know, he was in the remote part of a very remote part of the world. And so it's very easy for people to slip through the cracks in those situations because they're written off as town eccentrics or village idiots or whatever they are, but people learn to keep away, with, uh, uh, keep away from them without engaging them. 
uh, when seriously there's problems going on. But, you know, I take Dean's point, sliding door moments, it could have had a different outcome with different variables in play. Well, first of all, I want to say this kind of thing, there is never closure for the victims or their families or the many, many people who survived, as Dr. Tim said, but have massive physical and, and emotional trauma from this tragedy. So our hearts all go out to the people of Australia, Tasmania, and uh, we hope, we know that films like Nitram tend to open those wounds. And I know there was a lot of controversy for this film even getting made, but I'm glad that it was made because as the director says, evil forgotten uh, is evil perpetuated. You know, we have to remember what happened and honor the victims. And the one thing I do wish that they had had a scroll of the victims' names or the faces of the victims' names, I would have liked that. But, you know, if I ran the world, it would be a different place. (laughs) So, but thank you, Dr. Tim, for coming on with us. We will post links to your books that you've mentioned. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Dino. Today, we've bled a little bit over into your other true crime universe, Lisa, with this film. And we know that some of our fans are also listeners to RCP and other true crime pods. So for those of you who do have an interest in true crime, Tim's books, um, uh, Shrinking the Clink and Dancing with Demons, are excellent books on true crime and a collection of, of, of incredible stories from Tim's career. So we do encourage you to go out and read those by all means. All right. So for now, folks, thank you so much for listening. And for now, this is Killer Casting signing off. 